Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And if you're one of our fellow saloners who listens to these new podcasts right away when I post them, then uh, what you may want to do right now is to check the time, because beginning around 8.30 p.m. Pacific Time today, October 13th, if you surf on over to the Joe Rogan Experience uh, via Ustream.tv, well, uh, then you can uh, watch Joe interview our friend Bruce Damer, and uh, that's what I'll be doing myself. Also, uh, my friend Matt Palomari stopped by yesterday on his way back down to the Amazon jungle for a little more work with the vine, and uh, he asked me to say hello to you, and uh, depending on what happens during the rest of this month, he may be back here in the salon with some more new ayahuasca stories for us. And also, Matt has a uh, couple of new novels out, Dreamland and Eye of the Predator, uh, both of which I'll link to in today's program notes. Now, before I introduce today's program, I also want to send a shout-out to Dr. Neil Goldsmith and his team for producing another of their successful Horizons psychedelic conferences. Uh, This is one of the longest-running conferences in the psychedelic realm, and it's often the place where we first learn who our new up-and-coming psychedelic researchers and thinkers are. And uh, after the Saturday session, I received a call from Wild Bill, who you've heard from, uh, and <laughs> both from and about, I should say, here in the salon on several occasions. And uh, he'd just come from that day's sessions and wanted to let me know that he met Lily Ross there. Lily, as you know, is uh, also a featured speaker here in the salon. But here's why I'm mentioning this encounter. Bill hasn't been keeping up with these podcasts lately, and uh, so he didn't know about Lily. Uh, Yet, uh, here in downtown New York City, a 60-something former New York City parole officer and a 20-something graduate of Harvard Divinity School happened to uh, meet, and despite their differences in age and backgrounds, uh, well, they found some common ground. Namely, an interest in psychedelic medicines and the states of mind associated with them. Now, the next time somebody asks you what good psychedelics do, well, you can tell them about Wild Bill and Lily and how a mutual understanding of this realm dissolved all the normal cultural boundaries that uh, these two fine souls normally would have encountered. And uh, a final shout-out to Dr. T up there in the North Woods who came to mind during one of the riffs that we're about to hear from the bard Terrence McKenna as we continue listening to a workshop he led in February of 1992. Why did did the English suddenly decide that they had to go into the opium business? They're they're stealth. (laughs) That's stealth. It goes, every drug problem can usually be traced to a previous drug problem. The British East India Company spent a huge amount of time building up a world tea trade. And the Chinese were very smart. They sold tea in the ports of China to the English, but for 250 years they would never let the English see 
how the tea was grown or what it was exactly. What the English bought were bale tea. And it was all of Europe was addicted to a drug that nobody knew exactly where it came from or what it was. Well, then, eventually, the secret was lost. Stolen, let's be frank, friends. Eventually, the secret was stolen, wrenched from the hands of the Chinese, and the English began furiously growing tea in Ceylon. Although, what again, what agriculture always does, they produced too much tea, and they blew the market, the bottom out of the tea trade. So here's the British India East India Company with this huge infrastructure, coaling stations all around the world, and a vast fleet of tea ships, and nobody can sell tea and make any money. So then they said, well... Let's put Indians to work in Goa and we'll grow opium. He said, well, but opium, isn't that a drug? That's not a good thing to do. And he said, well, no, no, we're not going to sell it in England. That's not the plan. We'll sell it in China. You know, there are more people in China and they're not English, so let's let them have it. So that's why the tea traders became opium traders and that's why the opium wars were fought was to protect English mercantile capitalism uh, from the effects of... Uh, of the, the collapse of the tea trade. The Japanese, when they invaded Manchuria in the Second World War, they immediately began producing heroin and opium in vast amounts, not then as an economic um, strategy, but as a strategy to break the will of the Chinese population by encouraging addiction. And there was vast amounts of opium addiction. If any of you saw The Last Emperor of China, you recall that his mistress was severely addicted to opium and it depicted it in a number of scenes. So governments have very cynically manipulated drugs so that the drugs which make it possible for capitalism to function are cheap and freely available and the drugs which erode dominator values or ask cause people to question their situation are savagely suppressed. It seems like the dominator will always be in control because the psychedelic user will have a decreased ego. You mean, how can we win if we're taking psychedelics? (laughs) I think you just put me out of business. That's it, folks. (laughs) I'm slightly caught out on that. I think that what we have to say is that we must win by example. You know, the I Ching says you must never confront evil directly because then it learns how to defend itself. Uh, The hippies were certainly no threat to the government as a military force, but as an example, as a model for others to follow, I think they scared them to death. They were probably very happy to see them all turn into weathermen and begin <laughs> hurling Molotov cocktails. That right. they understood. Uh, right, they could relate to that, but flowers in the barrels of their guns spelled ruin and defeat, and they knew it. There was an article in Chronicle the other day about um, 
if nonviolent warfare, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, what dr- uh, drugs or gases or whatever that'll just temporarily disable people to prevent physical aggression and war. And so I think that's a step forward in a way. I think it's a step forward, although it was hatched by the military-industrial complex in a desperate effort to keep the money flowing. They're they're so frantic, they're willing to cut a deal at this point. A kinder, gentler warfare (laughs) is what we're talking about here. Yeah. So back to basics, you know, in terms of, you know, that it dissolves the ego and it shows you the true size of the world and it's a humbling experience and it's a religious experience, really, is no longer, I mean, just like he was saying, that's not so. So isn't the, the basic question how to get to that without using the machinery? You mean without using the drugs? Oh, yes. I mean, isn't, isn't yeah. that the basic question? It's, you know, you can tell them all to stick it up wherever, and you go on and you continue your religious, humbling, ego-dissolving experiences without... <laughs> well, the problem there is, uh, is it possible? Um, is it possible to attain these states any way other than with drugs? And this, this is... A, usually comes around at some point in these weekends as a bone of contention because w- we live in a society that offers an endless smorgasbord of non-pharmacological forms of spiritual advancement. I mean, there's first of all all the orthodox forms of religiosity. You know, you can study the Torah, you can study uh, Christian theology, or you can be a holotropic breather, or you can, uh, you know, it's endless, this stuff. I am very lumpen, and and this is where I feel myself to be the most crude among us, because none of this stuff works for me. And in my darker moments, I even say it doesn't work for anybody. Uh but a, I always get a person, there's always somebody who assures me that it happens for them naturally. And I just, you know, lucky for you, you're saving a pile of money. The rest of us are going to spend our whole lives trying to get to it. But basically, I'm very skeptical. And then the other problem is, if you don't do it with drugs it seems like there's always some weird beard personality in the picture. You know, Babaji, or Sri Muckaround Hamarubi, or Lama so-and-so, or Sister Somebody. And these people are inevitably pathological. I mean, wouldn't you be if you were Sister Somebody? And, and I... I think drugs are much safer than gurus. <laughs> gurus are... Um, it, it's part of this thing. We don't want to take responsibility for ourselves. And I guess, you know, I'm loathed for saying this because I just blow the whistle on all these people who have very good livings and are surrounded by adoring fans. And, and people are perverse and by people I include myself in that I mean people are perverse and one of the things they like to do you see is they like to surrender if it's safe 
And so here you have two choices. You can take this plant drug which is in use among the witch doctors of the Amazon and about which there are all these extravagant and horrifying stories and maybe you'll go mad and maybe you'll be enlightened and maybe you'll see God or maybe you'll be devoured by a giant snake. You can choose that path. Or you can just sweep up around the ashram for 10 or 15 years and make sure that Babaji always has a bowl of brown rice at his elbow and he will lift you up and do the thing. And people say, well, I think I'll go with Babaji. I don't want to. And what it is, is it's a fear of surrender. And I, don't, I, I hear you. And I'm... My concern is the original values are, are you know, the values about um, doing, doing it, you know, as a people. Uh, I don't know, you know, it's, it's again, it's very individualistic. It's, 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 I'm not sure that I can get to where I got to without the, the drugs. But I have felt certain experiences, you know, that are not exactly like that, but they're, they were meaningful. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure at this point. I mean, I'm toying with Jane and I'm not sure that I'm willing to play the game because it's become the game, and you know, not partake in it as a religious experience, as a group, as a, a kinder, gentler. You know, I, I, it's, it's hard because I'm, I'm, because I certainly don't want to follow Baba, whatever. And that's not my game either. But um, I'm, and without judgment, absolutely, I'm just really trying to understand or find the way that the initial values and you know the initial humbling uh, could be found. Mm-hmm. And in terms of addiction, I, I which I dealt with in terms of pot and uh, you know. A relatively powerful addiction for me it was, I began to use it as a non-religious experience. It was a deadening experience for me. It was a, you know, isolating experience. You know, this world feels like shit, you know. So, that, that, and and it served me, and it served me. It, it, absolutely, that's what I'm well, saying. Well, there are there are options other there than the two it that will again, I'm sure, serve me. I mean, but I, but I only, um, I, I'm trying to find um, something. One of the questions that's worth talking about, because I've never made up my mind about this, is the psychedelics are always cast as an option. In the spiritual quest, you can study yoga or meditation or you can take drugs or you can do good works like Mother Teresa or something like that. I've never been absolutely certain that psychedelics have anything whatsoever to do with the spiritual quest. If we define the spiritual quest as that which impels you to the moral life, then I don't really see... I don't understand. Uh, I do not. I certainly have taken a lot of psychedelics. I certainly am no moral e- exemplar, nor have I ever felt pressure to be one while on a psychedelic trip. The mushroom has never said to me, as a leader of the people, you should be a better person. Uh, I inevitably these spiritual hierophanies 
tend toward a vocabulary of unity and light and completion. And that's not the vocabulary that I would apply to the psychedelic experience. The psychedelic experience is weirder than that. It's about, um, you know, self-transforming elf machines from hyperspace kicking down your front door and rotating all four tires on your after-death vehicle and also checking the radiator. Is that a spiritual experience? Hell, who knows what kind of an experience it is. Um, we use psychedelic in a very limited sense to refer to the triplamine psychedelics. Uh, there are, of course, many psychedelics which where you don't have elves running around. Well, I call those things psychoactive, but you're right. You're right. They're psychoactive. See, here's the thing. I mean, there's a series of declensions here. There's uh, psychedelic, there's psychoactive, and there's altered states. There are hundreds and hundreds of altered states, most non-drug. And then there are altered states of consciousness which are drug-induced. I can feel an aspirin hit. I mean, I actually can feel the shift in my reality from two buffered aspirin. Uh, and then, of course, there's caffeine stimulation and downers and all of these things. None of this is psychedelic in the ordinary sense. And uh, the psychedelic experience for me is this very narrowly defined thing where you see visions hallucinations aren't even sufficient because there are all kinds of hallucinations you know moving grids of color and little swimming things and then you get the mice dancing in rows and the little candies floating by and this you can't build a pyramid out of that kind of stuff but the real vision is a very mysterious uh, thing Impossible by rationalist standards, and we all are rationalist enough that even in confrontation with it, we know that it's miraculous. So a, a thing worth thinking about and worth talking about this weekend is whether or not the psychedelics are in fact part of what is ordinarily thought of as the spiritual quest or the quest for religious understanding. There are people who take psychedelics who don't have an iota of spirituality in them. If you're interested, there's a very interesting book called Shamanism, Colonialism, and the Wild Man by Michael Taussig. Michael Taussig, I dare say, would be very uncomfortable in this room. He would dismiss us all as fruits and flakes because he's a Marxist labor organizer. There is no vertical gain in this guy's worldview. And yet, he's taken more ayahuasca probably than anybody in this room and been loaded, thoroughly loaded. So it's very interesting to read his book and garner his conclusions. He sees it in an entirely different way. Uh, I I think it is a way to access insight, but it doesn't seem to support the Neoplatonic hierarchy of ascending light and space that is the assumption of Western religion. There's no white light at the end of the tunnel in psilocybin. Instead, you know, there's 
the alien edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> maybe that's a spiritually enlightening thing to encounter, or, or maybe not. There is LSD. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, LSD fits. LSD is more classically psychoanalytic, number one, and number two, supportive of the metaphors of, of Western religiosity. It does move you toward the dissolving whiteness, the oneness with the unspeakable of Meister Eckhart and that crowd. Except in the, uh, in the Harvard experiments, uh, originally with Leary and Alpert, they used psilocybin uh, with these... Uh, well, but they put them in a they put them in a chapel on Good Friday. <laughs> well, so the set and setting then highly determined the trip. Uh, yeah, good man over here. Um, a couple times during the morning, and actually once last night, the subject the uh, uh, topic of uh, addiction came up, and uh, um, and I've heard. Uh, a number of people say psychedelics can be addictive, and uh, I believe that maybe that's probably that could possibly be true. I don't know it to be true, but could be possibly true in lighter doses. But in in a strong psychedelic, full-blown experience, I don't see how it possibly could be addictive. And and moving down that same uh, line of thought, uh, if that's the case, then isn't it? I mean, aren't we really kind of using the wrong word? If we're not making a distinction between drugs and psychedelics? Well, you have to make a distinction between physiological and psychological addiction. Most addictions are psychological. Addiction to eggs in the morning, addiction to having your newspaper on time, and addiction to... uh, Well, the controversial one, I think, is cannabis. Is it or is it not addicting? And I've had occasion to fiddle with this in the course of my life, and I think the answer is fairly complicated. I think the answer is yes, sometimes, or no, but sometimes yes. Uh, A year or so ago, I was in therapy and uh, with a uh, had a lot of problems. with my relationship and so forth and I was in therapy with this woman who I really respected a lot and she seemed very bright but strangely enough she knew almost nothing about drugs and it was a weird thing for me to have a therapist like that and she kept coming back to this thing about cannabis and she said well now how many times a day do you get stuck I said well Ten or a dozen. Say, well, and how many years have you been doing this? Say, twenty-five. She said, "Well, you know, you must be completely lost in this." And it kept. It became an issue in the therapy. So finally, I said to her, "I'll quit. I'll just quit because I the therapy. I quit." <laughs> I said, because, because I, I am convinced this isn't a problem and it will be uh, useful for you to see that someone with this kind of a history of cannabis use doesn't have a problem quitting. And uh, I did quit, and I had absolutely no problem with it, which amazed me. 
I, could, I, I had been whistling past the graveyard when I made these brave statements. It, it, it was no problem whatsoever. But at other times in my life, when I've tried to, to quit, it's been a real tussle of some sort. And I think that um, the setting has a great deal to do you know, I think we're now fairly addicted to the concept of addiction. As the evolution of drug attitudes has progressed, uh, well, let's take heroin, for example. In the 19th century, the user of opiates was the, called the drug fiend. You were a fiend. This means uh, the, the concept that is being evoked here is of demonic possession, you know, a junkie has a monkey on his back. That's another fiend image. You're possessed. You can't stop yourself. In the 20th century, addiction is viewed as a disease. And when once you view addiction as a disease, you've totally released yourself from responsibility to do anything about it. After all... If you have multiple sclerosis, we don't stigmatize you as morally lax and unable to discipline yourself. So if you have the disease of morphine addiction, well, you're not, it's not your fault. It just sort of happened to you, you know, like the flu or something. Well, I think this makes it almost impossible to begin any kind of rational program of cure because you just say, doctor, fix me. There's something wrong with me. Um, what I'm talking about, though, is like, like five grams of mushrooms or 40 milligrams of DMT. I mean, how often can you do that? Oh, no, I think that's a complete red herring. Nobody can be addicted to psychedelics, only if they use them as though it were another drug. In other words, it's possible to take many doses of LSD and what you are is you're a speedhead, you know. This is not what LSD does. This is what uh, uh, methamphetamine does. All psychedelics in low doses appear to be the same drug. You know, mescaline, LSD, psilocybin, harmine, uh, not DMT, because there is no such thing as a little bit, uh, it, it appears. But it's only when you take large doses, effective doses, I don't mean heroic doses, but when you take effective doses, then the differences immediately emerge. I don't know, I think addiction is a, is a disempowering concept. I notice there seems to be a backlash building. It's now okay to publicly ridicule 12-step programs and you're not just denounced as a mad dog of some sort because people have seen through it and people now are announce their addiction to everything uh, at the bat of an eye. There's a, there seems to be a movement amongst AA, that particular 12-step program um, that I've heard when I know people are doing it, that are using working with psychedelics. I mean, they're not drinking alcohol, but they're working with psychedelics. And there seems to be, uh, I, I wouldn't say a lot of people, but it's fairly widespread. Oh, well, I think that people who are very serious about AA are usually pretty open about... Uh, agreeing to the power of psychedelics. 
I mean, I know that in the AA program you're supposed to be totally clean and not do anything. But I've had people who were major figures in AA tell me, you know, you're exactly right on. This is the right thing. You know, in in the in the early 60s when LSD was first being explored by psychiatrists they began giving it to people chronic alcoholics and they they were getting uh close to 80% cure of chronic alcoholism with a single exposure to LSD well that doesn't mean that LSD is the magic bullet for alcoholism that would be hard to feature what it means is that if you take LSD you are forced to examine the dynamics of your life and if you notice that you're killing yourself you will be inspired to stop doing whatever you're doing I mean it can be alcohol it can be hard drugs it can be that you're mean to your wife and children it can be that you're chiseling your business partner and on the LSD you say hey that's not a smart thing to do i shouldn't do that and then you can usually muster the energy to uh, stop no the most the paradox of our society and its cockamamie attitude toward drugs the most dangerous drugs we legalize uh you know the drugs that do the most social harm we create mega industries out of them and then we demonize everybody else's drugs and this is a um, a situation that has been exacerbated since the middle of the 19th century you see we forget that all of this information about uh drugs has arrived in western civilization only in the last 100 to 120 years in the the same revelation the same revolution in thinking that brings darwin's theory of evolution uh and an awareness of let's call it the relativism of culture suddenly we realize that there are shinto and zen and shamanism and hinduism and all of these things also brought the arrival in western culture of the information about extremely exotic drug habits or drug usages that were very localized until very recently i mean ayahuasca is a good example in our lifetime ayahuasca has gone from being uh the subject of william burroughs and allen ginsberg's book the yahe letters where they actually had to make the equivalent of a spiritual pilgrimage to south america to sort through this it's gone from that to brazilian missionaries of these ayahuasca religions setting up camp in malibu and boston and berkeley and turning people on um uh, other drug well psilocybin an even more dramatic example in 1953 the use of psilocybin was restricted to certain mazatecan indian tribes in central mexico thanks to um the pro- the promulgation of home methods of cultivation uh 
now it's a standard item on the psychedelic menu of most high-tech industrial cultures. Uh, so we haven't really had time to assimilate all this and make sense of it. Addiction is simply a, what's the word? A shibboleth, is that the word? You know, it's a false, uh, it's a false boogeyman. I mean, our real addictions are to status, property, money, and power over others. I mean, if you got that under control, I think people's relationship to opiates would be a minor part of the agenda. But we we love to demonize the exotic and to pat ourselves on the back. I mean, alcohol culture, cultures that tolerate and encourage alcohol are just besotted with alcohol. It touches every aspect of life. I mean, for instance, you know, there are certain subcultures that I think are more besotted than others. Uh, Academe is just a nightmare of alcoholic abuse and misbehavior and carrying on of the most bestial and depressing sort. And, uh, you know, these are uh, the the carriers of the eggs. (laughs) They're carrying the basket in which the eggs of culture have been hidden. So, um, did that get it? Did it get something? <laughs> that that academic culture runs very heavily on alcohol. If you've ever been to faculty parties, and or or you know, do you think you could advance to full professor in the English department at Cal and Stanford if you were a teetotaler? I don't think so. I think you would be suspect as a pariah, not one of the boys, not a team player, you know. So a lot of hard drinking goes on in those situations. Politics, incredible. You know, Washington, if you want to go to a hard drinking town, you know, these guys that stumble across the front page of our newspaper are just the ones who get caught. I mean, everybody is boot juicing it real strong uh, inside the beltway. So, uh, yeah, having a belt inside the beltway. Yeah, uh, a couple of weeks ago, the, the CBS reporter Connie Chung, they were talking about uh, when they brought up about somebody's mistress and all that, you know, one of the presidential candidates, and she said, if you had to eliminate everybody who had sexual problems or drinking problems in Washington, about 10% would qualify to run for anything. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, I mean, we now are fixated on people's sexual picadillos in, in politics, but imagine if if getting sloppily drunk were uh, made you ineligible for high public office. I mean, don't forget, having one toke of marijuana 20 years in the past disqualifies you from the Supreme Court. You can't get near it. I mean, you're just a monster of vice. And yet, uh, a clown like Clarence Thomas... I hope you all read the Rolling Stone uh, encounter between Clarence Thomas and Hunter S. 
Thompson. Oh, it's classic. It's classic. The guy was such a beast that he frightened Hunter Thompson with his drug abuse treatment of women and uh, antics. Anyway, anything else left over from this morning? Talking about institutions being rife with uh, with alcohol, almost alcohol cultures, uh, it seems that business is the one place that seems to be changing. That you know the that it doesn't really work uh, as well, and that the hierarchical structures do not fit against what the real day to day needs are. You don't have an underlying. Uh, funded uh, uh, environment like government or or universities where you live or die, and that these new models uh, are taking hold, and that uh, uh, businesses are trying to transform themselves into learning organizations and, and keeping up with change, and are more open than I've ever uh, ever remember uh, being before. Well, probably because they're very aware of the bottom line and they're actually seeing the cost of alcoholism in their workforce, where, as you point out, government and academe, these are places where you feed at the trough of public monies in some sense. I mean, if you're a tenured professor, I don't know what kind of a drunk you would have to be turned into in order to get thrown out of a university. I mean, short of serial murder, they don't punish you for anything once you have tenure. (laughs) Somebody had something over here? I just wondered, segue completely, if you'd seen it play in the fields of the Lord. Um, I actually had such an emotional stake in that movie that I listened to Lou Carlino who wanted to direct it and I wanted to be the expert the you know the consultant that I didn't go see it because he said they ruined it that it was just botched if if you've read the book have you read the book the book is is one of the most wonderful it is I would say the most wonderful piece of fiction ever written about the Amazon and I without naming names I understand these actors did a terrible job and Babenko who directed it they thought they were so smart to get a guy a third world director but Victor Babenko had never been to the jungle. He's a Rio de Janeiro boy. Just because he did Kiss of the Spider Woman, that didn't set him up for this at all. What Lou said to me was, he said, there was no sweat, there were no bugs, there was no grime. What kind of an Amazon picture is this? And their portrayal of his ayahuasca experience was just pathetic. I mean, I heard it was uh, wide of the mark. <laughs> I mean, I hope it wasn't wonderful for you because here. Well, there you see, that's what makes horses. Ah! No, I think I probably should go see it. Well, now that my initial disappointment is. You know, it's Hollywood. It's not. You know, I mean, maybe throw out the idea that there should be any realism or truth in it. Uh, but what it did do, I thought personally was that at least it did give people, the audience, a somewhat more vivid uh, and and somewhat more accurate picture of this kind of tribal reality Mm -hmm. than anything I know of that's Mm -hmm. ever been in a Hollywood 
Well, how about John Borman's picture, The Emerald Forest? Yeah, yeah. yeah. this. Oh, that's more, uh, it's a better picture of this situation. More authentic. More authentic, definitely. I didn't see, I didn't see, uh, um, at play, so I can't say. But I thought John did a good job with that, considering he had never had a psychedelic experience at that point. He was feeling by theory, and he got pretty close to it. Uh, there have been attempts in Hollywood to deal with this theme, most of them quite unhappy. Uh, what was that awful thing with Richard Chamberlain? Altered States. Altered States. There's one about the ceremonies coming out um, with Val Kilmer. Um, yeah. Spirit Fire. Or oh, yeah, there's a, I saw the previous one. Like uh huh. Well, we want to encourage them. I mean, keep trying, folks. Uh, they'll, they may get it sooner or later, but it's hard for them to handle this kind of thing because it's very elusive, you know. I mean, showing an internalized world and especially, uh, you know, one that is different from person to person is uh, very, very tricky. Anything else? One last comment about that. Uh, the alcoholism and LSD thing. Um, I was at UCLA in the late 50s, early 60s when uh, Sidney Cohen was doing that research. And I don't think the statistics were quite as high as you mentioned. But if they worked at all, uh, they say that behind every alcoholic is a spiritual seeker, you know, gone awry. And if LSD worked at all, it might be because of the numinous state that it produced, which is what the alcoholic was really, you know, seeking or wanting to touch. Well, um, also, you know, there's a lot of contextualizing of drug experiences. For instance, the Chinese school of poetry surrounding Li Po, who was a Tang Dynasty poet, was alcohol. Alcohol was their drug of transcendence. And these schools, these groups of poets would get together and they would drink heavily and then they would declaim poetry and uh, scribes would write it down. And we inherit this as a corpus of sublime uh, artistic outpouring. And yet it happened, it was created in an environment which we identify with a very low consciousness state. Um, so, yeah, it, it is a contextualized thing, definitely. So we finished with that for the moment? We can always go back. Well, I thought... Uh, I sort of try to divide these things into different domains of concern. And I think thought of the morning as sort of the sociological, anthropological, historical shtick. And then... I thought maybe what we should do this afternoon, mainly because I, it's my favorite part, is to d talk about the content of these experiences. Uh, not only because it's fun, but because one of the things I've discovered in trying to wage this kind of career is uh, it's, it, because we are talking about something invisible, and an experience and because we can't all drop here in this room and compare notes 
it's often hard to get everybody to, to the same starting gate. People have entirely different notions of what you actually mean when you say a psychedelic experience. Most people, even straight people, have had what they call a drug experience. They either remember the time they drank a whole bottle of cough syrup or the time that, you know, they went in for minor surgery and were given an anesthetic or the time they had root canal work. And and everybody eventually, it's hard to live a life where you don't eventually get your mind altered. This does not set you up for the psychedelic experience. And because there's no consensus about this, it's worthwhile talking about the gradations and what is really possible. Uh, At the broadest level, you have what are called altered states. And altered states are any state different from the state you were just in, you know. So if you have a double espresso, you enter an altered state. If you climb a mountain in three minutes, you have an altered state. If you dive into cold water, altered state. And there are, thousands, you know, an infinitude of these altered states. I mean, if states didn't alter, life would be pretty boring. Uh, The moment-to-moment experience of being is an experience of altering states. I'm horny, I'm sleepy, I'm pissed off. These are all altered states. Then, as you close in through the concentric circle of this particular mandala, you come to, um, um, well psychoactive, the impact of psychoactive drugs. Now we've eliminated jumping into cold water, climbing mountains. Now we're firmly in the domain of drugs, substances of some sort, and it includes foods. I mean, you all know what an MSG flush is like. Well, or do you? Does everybody know what I'm talking about? Chinese restaurant syndrome? Okay, well, that's, that's a metabolite, a monosodium glutamate, being taken in excess amount and causing an altered state. It's a kind of a, you could think of it as a drug. Anything which changes your mind can be abused as a drug. Jalapeno peppers are in many shamanic societies. People uh, eat huge amounts of jalapeno peppers and identify the feeling as power. And they say, I am building my inner heat so that I can cure. You know, it's a very conscious kind of thing. Well, then there are uh, the more traditional um, psychoactive um, States, states of tranquility brought on by tranquilizers, halcyon, valium, you know, there's a minion of these things and they come and go, Prozac, uh, or states of agitation, uh, methadrine, benzedrine, dexedrine, amphetamine, white sugar, caffeine, um, theobromine, the active agent in sugar, in cocoa and chocolate, uh, and 
each one of these things pushes you into a different state which is largely emotive and rooted in the body. But when you get to the psycho... Uh, the uh, Well, before we talk about the psychedelics, then there are drugs which are mental drugs which I don't consider psychedelic. And I will, my definition of psychedelic is tighter than most people's. For instance, you may know about Datura. Uh, Datura is jimson weed and these ornamental plants with the large white bell-like flowers. Well, if you make a tea out of the leaves, root, flowers, or seed of that plant, it will turn you every way but loose. I mean, it is uh, a completely disorienting freaky kind of experience with loss of memory, uh, confusion of sequence, delusion of reference, uh, uh, amnesia, projective imagining, so forth and so on. To my mind, it is not a psychedelic state. I call it a deliriant or a confusant. I remember, I always usually end up telling this story. What put me off Datura was years ago when I lived in Nepal, I had this English friend, and we experimented with all kinds of drugs. And one day I was in the market buying potatoes and, and uh, tomatoes, the only two things you could get in Bodhna at that time. And uh, I encountered this guy and we started just exchanging the news of the day. And in the course of the conversation, I became aware that he thought I was visiting him in his apartment. He was so lost in this stuff that he didn't know we were out in the street, in the market. He thought I had come by his rooms. Well, I just said, that's too stoned. Nobody needs to be that twisted around. I mean, you, you literally do not know what is happening. What the, this, to my mind, the psychedelics can be chemically defined with very few exceptions as indoles. Indoles. Now, the only exception to this is uh, mescaline. Mescaline is not an indole. It's a phenylethylamine, or some people consider it a cyclicized amphetamine, which is a phenylethylamine. I am not fond of mescaline. It seems to me that to get to psychedelic levels with it, you have to take so much that you're fairly rattled. It's hard on you, and it's hard on you the next day. Uh, and many people who are great devotees of peyote, when you question them very closely, it isn't the quality of the visions. It's some more murky thing. It's that they like hanging out with Native Americans. They like drumming all night. They love ceremonies. They like going to the Southwest. And they, but it's not the quality of the visions. Not that mescaline can't do that. It certainly can. If you read uh, these early researchers like Heinrich Kluver, uh, S. Weir Mitchell, Havelock Ellis, I mean, these are wonderful descriptions of full-on psychedelic states. But they were using pure mescaline. 
you know, and close to a gram a throw, which is a lot. Most people, when they take pure mescaline, if you actually measure the amount that they're taking, they're taking well under what uh, is clinically considered the effective dose. If you look in the Merck manual or the PDR, the clinically recommended dose of pure mescaline is 750 milligrams, three quarters of a gram of alkaloid. Very few people actually take that. And this brings us to one of the issues around psychedelics. There are a lot of wannabe experts running around who didn't take enough because you have to take a lot not a lot, but you have to take a frightening amount to, uh, to get into what it's really about. People who have taken, uh, you know, 50 gamma of LSD or 100 gamma of LSD or 2 grams of mushrooms or something like that, they are not qualified to hold forth on the nature of the psychedelic experience because that those doses don't deliver it to you. What they deliver is the periphery of the psychedelic experience, accelerated thought processes, a kind of depth and richness to cognition that is unfamiliar, an ability to analyze situations from unusual perspectives or to reach uh, unexpected conclusions. But I And I found this reluctance to come to grips with the full psychedelic experience, even among Amazonian shaman. I mean, people are reluctant to go the full distance. We were with shamans at one point in Peru, ayahuasca shamans, and I was aware of uh, an admixture plant that was stronger than the admixture plant that they were using. And I kept asking this guy, what about so-and-so? Why don't we do that? And at first, all he would say was... uh, that it's not for Christians, which was strange because he always knocked Christians. So I didn't, but I kept pressing. And finally he said, we don't, we just don't do it that way. And I said, why not? And he said, because it's Mali Bizarro. You know? And I I said, isn't that what we're shooting for? Apparently not. Uh, A curing shaman wants to be empowered to cure. He doesn't conceive of himself as a Magellan of the phenomenological realm who's setting out to circumnavigate the mental universe in an evening. and then of the psychedelics, they deliver differing levels of this. And then what you always have to bear in mind when you listen to me talk about this is there are physiological differences among people. You know, uh, in the same way that person A can detect a compound X at one part in 10,000, but person B cannot detect the same uh, compound unless it's there in, uh, you know, a thousand parts in 10,000. We are genetically different in this area of drug receptors. 
And it's even possible, although it is also permissive of a kind of crypto-fascism, to believe that there are shamanic lines, families, races even, that are more or less inclined to this. The Irish are always singled out as special offenders in this area. Uh, you know, the stereotype of the Irish is that they have a peculiarly intense relationship to intoxication and to little people in a nearby but invisible world. Um, I don't put a lot of credence to this, but it's very hard for me to tell because I can only sample myself and I happen to be Irish, although leavened with Sicilian genes to keep it from getting out of hand. Um, so what you really have to do when you start exploring psychedelics is to try and figure out you know, what's the center of the mandala? What are people talking about? What is it when it's really when you arrive on the money and to my mind the compound that is most interesting for doing that is DMT DMT is um, the most interesting in some ways of the psychedelics because more issues are raised by it than any other uh, such issues as, I mean, I'll just run over some of them so you get a feeling for it. Um, DMT is the strongest hallucinogen there is. If it's, if it's possible to get more loaded than, than that, I don't want to know about it. And I say so when I'm there. I say, my God, if you can get more loaded than this, keep it away from me. Uh, so that's it. It's the strongest. It's also the shortest acting. DMT, when smoked, in most people, is return you to normal in under 10 minutes. Under 10 minutes. Now, this is interesting because people who, who think there's nothing to this who don't who should actually invest the 10 minutes to find out what's you know t a 10 minute DMT DMT trip is worth 20 years of academic pharmacology art history <laughs> psychology and all this other malarkey because then you just say okay I got it I got it another very interesting thing about DMT is it occurs naturally in the human brain well, now, what's going on here? He's saying the strongest drug, the fastest drug, is the most natural drug. It means that, you know, you don't have to sail off into 3-hydroxy-4-pyridyl-N-methyl-marubishtick or something like that to get into the exotic realms. No, a human metabolite, which takes only 10 minutes to undergo its entire uh, exfoliation and quenching, is the strongest of all. Well, then, what is it? What does strong mean? What is a strong psychedelic? Uh, you know, it's, it's highly uh, personal. Every psychedelic trip is. But what happens on DMT for a large number of people, I mean, we don't have any statistics, but it is a completely confounding experience 
I mean, you may have had the expectation, you might think if you had never had a psychedelic experience that it sort of begins like uh, the Bach B minor fugue and goes from there as you rise into the realms of light and union with the deity or something like that. That's not what happens on DMT. What happens on DMT, I referred to this morning. Uh, A troop of elves smashes down your front door and rotates and balances the wheels on the after-death vehicle, present you with the bill, and then depart. And it's completely paradigm-shattering. I mean, you know, union with the white light you could handle, uh, an invasion of your apartment by jeweled self-dribbling basketballs from hyperspace that are speaking in demotic Greek is not something that you anticipated and could handle. Sometimes people say, uh, is DMT dangerous? It sounds so crazy. Is it dangerous? The answer is only if you fear death by astonishment. (laughs) Remember how you laugh when this possibility was raised and a moment will come that will wipe the smile right off your face. And this death by astonishment thing, uh, well, one thing about it, I mean, let me say a little bit more about it. One thing that endears DMT to me is I like to say it doesn't affect your mind. It doesn't seem to affect your mind. In other words, uh, you don't change under the influence of DMT. You don't become a kinder, gentler person. You don't sink into, you know, a line of drool from one corner of your mouth as you sit there twitching. You don't change. What happens is the world is completely replaced. Instantly, 100%, it's all gone. And what is put in its place, not one iota of what is put in its place was taken from this world. So it's a 100% reality channel switch. They don't even retain three-dimensional space and linear time. It's not like you go to an exotic place, Morocco or New Guinea. It's like you uh, reality is swapped out for something else. And when you try to say what it is, you realize that language has evolved in this world and it can serve no other in a, or it must it takes years of practice so what you're looking at is literally the unspeakable <coughs> the indescribable falls into your lap and when you try you're loaded right you're there and you're trying to explain to yourself what's happening <laughs> And so this is like you try to pour water over the transdimensional objects in front of you, the water of language, and it just beads up and flows off like water off a duck's back. You cannot say what's there. And I've spent, I don't know, 25 years 
fiddling with this. It's become the compass of my inspiration, trying to say what is on the other side of that boundary. Just two large tokes away at any given time is this non-Euclidean, non-Newtonian, irrational, un-Englishable place. But it's not smooth and empty and clear. That's not what gives it its indescribability. What gives it its indescribability is its utter weirdness, its alienness, its power to astonish. Uh, What happens to me when I smoke DMT is um, there's a there's a kind of a going toward it. There's a sequela of events which lead to the antechamber of the mystery. I mean, you take a toke, you feel strange. Your whole body feels odd. You take a second toke, all the oxygen seems to have been pumped out of the room. Everything jumps into clarity. It's that visual acuity thing. You take a third toke if you're able, and then you lay back and you see this thing which looks like a rose or a chrysanthemum, this orange spinning flower-like thing. It takes it about 15 seconds to form, and it's like a membrane. And then you break through it. You break through it, and then you're in this place. And there's an enormous cheer which goes up as you pass through this membrane. Some of you may know the Pink Floyd song about how the gnomes have learned a new way to say hooray. They're waiting. And you burst in to this place and you're saying, you know, jeez, you know, this stuff is really speedy. I mean, that's like describing a space shuttle launching as noisy, you know. You say, this stuff is, it's, you know, and you say, am I all right? Am I all right? That's the first question. And so then you run your mind around the track and you say, hmm, heartbeat, normal, yeah, normal, heartbeat, normal, Uh, pulse, normal, breathing, breathe, 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 yes, but what's right here, right here and from here out is this thing, which no matter how much science fiction you've done, no matter how much William Burroughs you've read, no matter how much time you've spent in the company of the weird, the bizarre, the outre, and the peculiar, you weren't ready. And it's completely real. In, it's in a way more real than the contents of ordinary reality because see how the shadows here are muted and there's a lot of... Uh, transitional zones from one color to another and so forth. This isn't like that. This is crystalline, clear, solid. You can see the light reflected in the depths of these objects and everything is very brightly colored and everything is moving very, very rapidly. And there are entities there it's not about calling them up or the whisperings of them. Or No, they're in your face. <laughs> and they're right here and they, they're, they're worse than in your face because what they do is they, they jump into your chest and then they jump out. And so you're like this. 
<laughs> and you have to keep saying, keep breathing, keep breathing, don't freak out, pay attention. And, and the entities speak to you. And they, and they speak both in English and another way, which we'll get to in a minute. But in English, what they say is, do not give way to wonder. Hang on. Don't just go gaga with disbelief. Pay attention. Pay attention. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to show you something. They are, they are very aware of the fleeting nature of this encounter. And they say, you know, don't just spiral off into amazement and start raving about God and all that. Forget that. Pay attention to what we're doing. And then what they're doing is they're dancing around, they're jumping around, they're emerging explicitly out of the background, bounding toward you, jumping into your chest, bounding away, and they offer, they make offerings. And they love you. That's the other thing. They say this. They say, we love you. You, you come so rarely. And, you know, here you are. Welcome, welcome. And then they, sh- they make these offerings. And the offerings are objects of some sort. And, the, and now remember, you are not changed. You're exactly the person you were a few minutes before. So you're not exalted or depressed. You're just trying to make sense of this. And the objects which they offer are like um, Fabergé eggs or exquisitely tooled and enameled pieces of machinery, but they don't have rigid outlines. These objects are themselves somehow alive and transforming and changing. So when these creatures, I call them tykes, when these tykes (coughs) offer you these objects, you like, you grok it, you look at it, and immediately, because you are yourself, you have this realization, my God, if I could get this thing back into my world, history would never be the same. A single one of these objects is somehow, you can tell by looking at it, this would confound my world beyond hope of recovery. It cannot exist. What I'm being shown is a tiny area where miracles are being transformed. And they then, and the creatures, the tykes, are singing. They are speaking in a kind of translinguistic glossolalia. They are actually making these objects with their voices. They are singing these things into existence. And what the message is, is do what we're doing. You can do what we're doing. Do it. And they get quite pushy about this. They say, you know, damn it, do it. And you're saying, but, 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 and saying, no, do it, do it now, do it. And saying, I can't handle this, you know. And then this kind of reaction goes on for a while. Well, then I actually, I don't, I don't take credit for it. It was not willed, but like something comes up from inside of you. Something comes out of you and you discover you can do it. 
that you can use language to condense objects into existence in this space. It's the dream of all magic. But here it is, folks, happening in real time. And, uh, and then they're just delighted. They just go mad with delight and turn somersaults and turn themselves inside out. And they all jump into your chest at once. And, and after many, many uh, encounters of this sort, I mean, when I first did DMT, I couldn't bring anything out of it. I mean, I just said, no, it's the damnedest thing I've ever encountered and I can't say anything about it and I don't think I ever will be able to say anything about it. But by going back repeatedly and working at it, I think I've gotten a pretty coherent... Well, let's not go that far. (laughs) I think I've got a pretty uh, clear metaphor, anyway, for what's happening in there, and I think a lot of people have this experience. When you talk to shamans, they say, "Oh, well, yes, the helping spirits. Those are the helping spirits. They can help you cure, find lost object you didn't know about helping spirits." <laughs> said, "Well, I knew, I, but I, I, I had no idea, you know, that it was so literal." You say, "Oh no, that's the helping spirits." And that, but then the other thing they say. If you press a shaman, if you say, well, what exactly is a helping spirit? Say, well, a helping spirit is an ancestor. Say, you mean to tell me that those are dead people in there? Say, well, yes, ancestor, dead person. You didn't know about ancestors, apparently. This is what happens to people who die. And you say, my God, is it possible that what we're breaking into here is an ecology of souls, that these are not extraterrestrials from Zenebel Ganubi or Zeta Reticuli Beta. These are the dear departed. And they exist in a realm which, for want of a better word, let's call eternity. And somehow this drug, or whatever it is, is allowing me to see across the the veil. This is the lifting. You want to talk about boundary dissolution. It's one thing to get tight to your partner. It's quite another to get tight to the dear departed of centuries past. That's a serious boundary dissolution when that happens. Uh, What these creatures want, according to them, is they want us to transform our language somehow. And I don't know what this means. I mean, at this point in the weekend and in my life, we all are on the cutting edge. And nobody is ahead of anybody else. Uh, Clearly, we need to transform our language because our culture is created by our language and our culture is toxic, murderous, and on a downhill bummer. Somehow we need to transform our language. But is this what they mean? That we're supposed to condense machines out of the air in front of us? Uh, How does this relate to the persistent idea promulgated by Robert Graves and other people that there is a primal language of poetry? 
that poetry as we know it is a pale, pale thing and that at some time in the human past people were in command of languages which literally compel belief. They compel belief because they don't make an appeal through argument or uh, metaphor. They compel belief because they are able to present themselves as imagery. You know, William Blake said, if the truth can be told so as to be understood, it will be believed. And so these things uh, have... And it's very confusing because you wonder, you say, well, have people been doing this for thousands of years? And if so, have they always encountered this tremendous urgency on the other side? If people have been doing it for thousands of years, why is there this urgency on the part of these entities? And who exactly and what exactly are they? Uh, I... I uh, it, uh, in, it appalls me, you can probably tell, that I have to talk about this because I am not, this is not my bailiwick. I mean, I'm a rationalist who's just had a very weird uh, set of experiences, but I am a rationalist. I mean, I have no patience with channeling, you know, the lords of the many rays, the divas, and, you know, there's this whole thing going around about disincarnate intelligence, and it's mostly in the, under the control of fairly, shall we say, non-rigorous thinkers. Uh, but I like to think that I am a rigorous thinker, and yet here I am telling you that, you know, elf legions await in hyperspace one toke away. The difference between my rap and, uh, you know, the Findhorn folks or somebody like that is that we have an ap- operational method for testing my assertion. We can all smoke DMT, or you can make it your business to now find out about this and see for yourself. And not everybody agrees with me. I mean, some people say, you know, it wasn't anything like that. But some people agree, and I think if you get two out of ten agreeing with a rap like this, then you better pay attention. (laughs) Yeah, somebody... Uh, you said that uh, no amount of meditation or anything else prepares you for it. And, I mean, I've certainly smoked a fair amount of DMT, and I've maybe not 50 times, but probably approaching it that, that, and I'm still not prepared for it. Each time, it seems like, I mean, all the times before haven't prepared me for what I get into. Is there a point where you found that you are prepared? No, you're never prepared because, in fact... And I mentioned this last night. Something goes on in the DMT flash that I don't think anyone can bring back. There is at the core of the experience, something is revealed that is so appalling that nobody can bring it back into ordinary reality. And that's why it's hard to understand because, as you know, I've done it a number of times and every time I approach it, 
it scares me shitless. I cannot approach it any other way. And it's physical. I mean, my palms sweat. I can't hold the pipe. My hand shakes. I wish I hadn't gotten myself into this situation. I fear it like death itself. That's the clue, folks. Uh, I think that what happens, and I've reached this opinion by by reason and rationalization, not by direct experience. I think that what happens at the center of the mandala of that experience is that you do understand that these are souls. You have some kind of experience which converts you to this view beyond a shadow of a doubt. I'm not saying you meet your dead grandmother, but it's something like that. And that experience is simultaneously so um, affirming and at the same time so paradigm-shattering that you can't, you can't retain it. You, you return to this world with a story of jeweled self-transforming basketballs and Fabergé eggs and a lesson in hyper-language. But there is a moment, I think, where you find out something truly, truly paradigm-shattering that you can't even tell yourself it's such an appalling revelation. And the only thing I can think of that would fill that bill is something about the nature of life and death. That you actually go under the board, you find out the thing which nobody is ever supposed to find out in this world. And I suspect it's what shamans know. That that a shaman is a person who knows the unspeakable secret. And once you know it, you know, there's no going back. I mean, you become fey, enchanted. You're touched by the other. You now are a part of fairyland. And this gives you, I don't know what it gives you, charisma, magical power, healing, the possibility to heal. But it also sets you apart from your fellows because they don't know from it. They don't know. I mean, science can't survive in that environment for half a minute. The entire construct of Western reason disappears into that dimension like hurling an ice cube into a blast furnace. You know, it just can't survive that encounter. If flying saucers were to land on the south lawn of the White House tomorrow, it wouldn't change the fact that DMT is the weirdest thing in the universe. Um... Yeah. What? I haven't done DMT yet. <laughs> I'm very fa- fascinated now. Um, but, so what's the, you know, you're describing this experience in some way, which somehow I think you're communicating it to us. Um, but now after this has happened, you know, ten minutes of time as we know it passed, and you were saying that Physically, your mind is working, your emotions are working. Um, The drug goes out of your system. You're snapped back into, you know, boring old reality. Then what happens? Do you know what I mean? Well, you spend the next week sort of trying to integrate what the hell this is about. No. No, you don't do either. In most cases, what you do is you immediately forget. 
immediately. So if you talk to a person five minutes after they've smoked DMT, they're, they're usually into saying, it was incredible, it was amazing. And then you talk to them a half hour later, and they say, you know, it was the most incredible thing that's ever happened to me, but I can't remember anything about it. And the fact that it's so brief, we tend to value things based on how long they last. Something which only lasts two minutes, once it's over, how can you say that that was the most important thing that ever happened to you? I mean, it is utterly irrelevant. It made no statement about your life, what you should do with your future, who you are, where you're going, or anything like that. It was just as though reality was rent, and you looked into an alien dimension. And then the rent was sealed, and everything goes back to being fine and dandy, thank you. Um, It takes a lot of effort to stay focused on this dimension. I mean... I'm sorry, so let's say you do that, and then the amnesia happens, and you just cannot integrate anything about that vision into your personality or your mind. It's like uh, it happens, and it stops happening, and you can't absorb it. But then uh, what must happen is at some time in the future, your curiosity is up, and you want to go try to get it again. Well, what it did for me was... um, It's evidence against certain points of view is what it is. It says, you know, uh, rationalism is just vaporized. And that never returns for you. Only if you can completely suppress the experience can you ever return to ordinary rationalism. I mean, you've just been in a place that was crawling with elves even if that never happens again, it did happen, and you from now on must take account of that in your modeling of the universe. You now know that elves really exist. This will make you much more interesting to your children. Uh, you know, you've been reconverted to a belief in Santa Claus is what's happened, and now Santa's gone back up the chimney, but you're left saying, you know, God, he was really here. Yeah, the milk's gone, the cookie's eaten. What the hell? Uh, a couple of questions. Uh, can you bring volition to it? Do something in that place? Can you uh, decide in advance that you are, since you've done this more than once, that you know, and you describe it as though it's the same each time, is it? It's pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other side question of that is if three people were in the room doing it together, would they have, if you caught them... Uh, in this period, or if you caught them immediately afterward, would their uh, impressions of it be very similar? I've sat in situations where you would turn one person on, then another person, maybe do six people in the course of an evening, and reactions vary. Uh, But also, there's a skill to doing it, (laughs) and that's a part of the problem. Uh, It's very harsh, the smoke is very harsh and you have to hold on to these big tokes so that uh, if a person can't hang on to the toke, they're pretty much out of luck. I mean, it's a pity that it comes down to such a mechanical matter 
This is why the best candidates for DMT, I think, are leather-lunged hash abusers. <laughs> they have the lungs for it. Well, my other question yeah. is, uh, you have described it as an absolute phenomenon, but what benefit is there? Well, I, to me, it seems like the beneficial aspects arise by extrapolation. It teaches you, and this is what it taught me. I mean, I will never forget my first DMT trip because I was such a case going into it. I mean, if you had known me when I was 19 years old, I was into Jean-Paul Sartre, Alfred Camus, Marxism, Freud... I was a jerk, and uh, and I came down from it, and I said, I can't believe it. That was all I could say for about 20 minutes. I was like in shock. I said, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Jesus, I can't believe it. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I hope that you enjoyed Terence's DMT rap once again. It's been quite a while since I've heard that uh, death by astonishment bit, and it brought me back to a room in upstate New York during the summer of 1999 when I first heard him go on with uh, such enthusiasm about his experiences on DMT. And the version of it that we just heard is for sure uh, one of his most detailed and enthusiastic, I believe. The first time that I heard it live, I remember that we took a break shortly after the rap and nobody left the room. (laughs) All 60 of us were trying to find the guy who was rumored to have some DMT for sale. (laughs) And uh, looking back now, it seems quite funny, but at the time we were almost desperate to make a connection before the weekend ended. And uh, a couple of those other attendees have become lifelong friends of mine now, I should add. But before I forget it, uh, for our newest members here in the salon, our new fellow saloners, I should mention that you just listened to Terrence McKenna speaking about both DMT and ayahuasca. And uh, I think it's important to keep in mind that DMT is actually the primary active psychedelic ingredient in the ayahuasca brew. Uh, The chemistry is similar, but a smoke DMT session lasts uh, anywhere from uh, 2 to 10 minutes, say, while an ayahuasca session uh, can generally last from 4 to 6 hours. And one other thought about DMT that crossed my mind when Terence was saying the elves he saw were creating machines out of language and that they were telling him to do the same thing. Now, (laughs) this is a bit of a stretch, okay, but what if the language was a computer language? Well, then it's possible to create machines out of language in a virtual reality environment. I don't actually think that that's what Terence was saying, or the elves were saying for that part, but it's an interesting thought. Well, at least it is to me. (laughs) And uh, following up on the uh, comments that we just heard Terence make about admixture plants in some ayahuasca brews, I suggest that should you ever go to the Amazon for an authentic ayahuasca experience yourself, You want to be sure to ask your ayahuascaro whether any admixture plants are being used in the brew. I've uh, I've had several of these experiences with admixtures, and for me, they were all very informative. However, there was one time when the ayahuascaro added datura to the brew, and while I had a very transformative experience, one of our other members of the circle had one of the worst times I've ever seen. In fact, it took months to sort the whole thing out, 
But uh, what happened was that one of the active chemicals in Datura is also uh, what was once used for childbirth. Uh, it was called, I believe, twilight sleep. And apparently uh, this poor man had a horrible, uh, terrible, horrible birth. And uh, his mother had been on that drug at the time. And uh, I've thought about this quite a bit since my own mother had been using large doses of phenobarbital to hold her epilepsy at bay during the entire time that she was pregnant with me. It was uh, in my system at birth. And I'll let you mull both of those things over for yourself. How's that? <laughs> for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>